Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 43 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul's Trial Before the Sanhedrin, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 11. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, we're in a section of the book of Acts where we're going to be focusing on Paul's trials one after the other. And Luke, among other things, seeks to present Paul as innocent of any charges that would require his death or his incarceration. But the larger issue that the Holy Spirit has as he inspires Luke to write this is how does Paul's testimony to Christ present the greatness of the gospel and then salvation for those who believe in Jesus? And so fundamentally, we're looking at Paul as a messenger of the gospel and the way the Lord sustains and protects him and uh, enables him to testify to Christ. Well, let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 11 in Acts 23 as we begin. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Andy, why do you think Luke tells us that Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin while proclaiming his innocence? Well, Paul's an amazingly bold witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in incredibly challenging, threatening situations, Paul's concern always is to testify to the gospel and to testify to the greatness of Christ. He has no fear. He really is ready to die for Christ. Furthermore, we need to understand the history between Paul and the Sanhedrin. It was from the Sanhedrin that Saul of Tarsus got letters from the high priests and the Sanhedrin, as I said, to go to synagogues in Damascus, see if there are any there that belong to Christianity, to the way. So they, he was originally their lackey. 
I don't know if it's all the same people because it's many years later, but it is the same authoritative body. And so they really have a case against Paul. They hate him. Uh, they oppose him. Now, they don't have any legal case. That's part of what Luke is going to show in the book of Acts here is that there's no reason to be holding Paul. They don't have any good cause against him. But the fact is they ha- there's some heritage and history between them. And so Paul's looking right at them boldly and has no fear. Andy, what's the conscience and what's the significance of Paul's claim to have fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience to that very day? Yeah, the conscience is that internal part of us that 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 judges or evaluates our own actions, good or bad. And so our conscience speaks up and, and uh, shows us guilty if the conscience that says that we've done something wrong or um, affirms our action uh, in case that we have done what the conscience thinks is right. The conscience is not inerrant. It just tells you do the right and don't do the wrong, but it's not able to discern properly what is right and wrong. And so the conscience is a is a uh, part of the original equipment in the image of God, which can be used for the glory of God once the person is regenerate and the new heart is given in the new covenant, then the conscience is something we should follow. We should never violate our conscience. However, in a pagan religion, for example, if there were certain ritual sacrifices that were, were to be made to pagan deities and the person chose not to make them and they could feel guilty and their conscience would smite them for not following through on a completely false or even demonic religion. So conscience is part of that original equipment and it can be used for good, but it can also be used for evil. So Paul says, my conscience testifies that what I have done is the right thing. Hmm. And they're shocked at this. They were looking for some kind of confession of wrongdoing here. Now, this isn't the only time Paul has talked about his conscience. Why does Paul so frequently appeal to his own clear conscience, even going so far as to say in Acts 24, 16, that he takes pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man? Yeah, that's going to be a good verse for us to discuss when the time comes. I'm looking forward to that. But the fact is, I think I use this frequently in mentoring when I meet with men, um, talk about like their their um, activities on the internet or anything at all. Just don't violate your conscience. Mm-hmm. Keep your conscience clear. Keep your conscience pure. I think it's a very important thing and underestimated. I will say it's very difficult for me to discern any difference at all between the inner leading of the Holy Spirit and the activity of the conscience in a very mature Christian. They end up singing in concert, I Mm. would say. So in the end, I think it's about the same thing. I can't discern the difference between my conscience smiting me and the Holy Spirit convicting me. It ends up about the same. Why do you think Ananias reacted so violently to Paul's declaration of his innocence, commanding that Paul be struck? Well, I think when Paul's claiming to be innocent of having done anything wrong, Ananias is, is – he's so far the other way. You are a scoundrel. You, you are the man who's teaching people everywhere against our religion. How can you possibly make this statement? So there's this, this mock or even genuine indignation on the part of Ananias who himself is a corrupt person. And so he orders that Paul be struck. Do you think Paul sinned in his response to Ananias' command to strike him on the mouth? And how does this instance compare to Christ's response to the man who struck him on the mouth during his trial? Right. So Paul says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, you who sit there to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, order that I be struck. 
Wow. Um, I heard a preacher once talk about this, say, no, that's biblical swearing right there. Mm. You whitewashed wall. Wow. Okay. So first of all, what does that mean? It means it's like Jesus said about the scribes and Pharisees, like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but inside full of corruption. You are a hypocrite. You're not what you appear to be. And so Paul's charging him with being a corrupted individual. Now we need to understand the big picture here. Josephus tells us that um, the high priest, uh, the family of Annas and Caiaphas and all that, that controlled the priesthood, were becoming filthy rich with the temple concession system tied to the animal sacrificial system, uh, whereby um, worshipers would come, Jewish men would come, and they would have to offer an animal sacrifice. And the inspectors at the temple, priests who worked for the high priest, would inevitably reject the animals that the worshipers brought because they found some defect in them and they would confiscate them and sell them the next day to somebody mm -hmm. else. Meanwhile, they would offer pre-approved animals over here for a slightly elevated price. And the money they brought from the outer precincts of Jewish life would never be accepted there. They needed the temple coin. And so they would change money and make money on that as well. Jesus destroyed this whole system twice. The uh, temple, the money changers in the temple, they're making huge money. Ananias is part of that system. Mm. And so the idea of great corruption, financial, uh, just wickedness through religion is, uh, it just smells. These people are just genuinely evil people. However, to zero in on the question, did Paul sin by what he said? Now, that's a very important question. I think the fact of the matter is prophets did frequently speak to evil people with this level of bluntness. Mm. It is a tradition um, that when you are a wicked priest or a wicked king, etc., you can expect some kind of language uh, like this from the prophet. Look how Elijah dealt with Ahab um, or Jezebel or some of these others. They were very bold. So I don't think this is necessarily a sin. Um, I think it's a prophetic pronouncement of judgment uh, on them. So I don't actually think that Paul sinned here. Now, you also asked about Jesus and a similar situation when he was on trial and he was struck at the order of the high priest. And the reason was Jesus said, I taught openly in the synagogue. Uh, everybody heard me. Where are your witnesses? You need witnesses. So he's urging the proceedings to be done legally. That's also Paul's concern. You ordered me to be struck contrary to the law. You don't get to strike prisoners who have not been condemned. So the fact of the matter is, Jesus and Paul are dealing with the same thing, the injustice of the proceedings. And so when Jesus said that in John 18, someone trying to curry favor with the high priest slapped Jesus in the face, fulfilling prophecy, mm. where it says they struck the judge of Israel on the cheek in Micah. And Jesus doesn't just lay down for it. I know he taught turn the other cheek, but he turns to this individual and said, if, if I have spoken falsely, then bear witness of it. Again, the same issue is, is witness, testify. Hmm. But if I told the truth, then why did you strike me? So there's the difference. Um, I think there may have been some carnal heat on the part of Paul, so he may have sinned in the way he answered, etc. But both Jesus and Paul are dealing with the intrinsic injustice of the proceedings. That's the similarity. 
Andy, how should we understand verses 4 and 5, and how does the scripture that Paul quotes show his attitude of submission to God-ordained authority? Right. It is. I'll I'll circle back right away on what you said at the end. The whole thing comes down to being respectful to God-ordained authority. Fundamental to our sin nature is that we throw off all authority, starting with God's authority, but we tend to murmur and complain and revolt against human authorities as well. We complain about the police. We don't like our teachers in, in high school. You know, we complain about deadlines uh, from our boss or how he treats you. And we just whine and complain about authority. The thing we need to get our wrap our minds around is I believe that there will be delegated authority in heaven for all eternity. We're going to be submitting to brothers uh, and sisters in Christ. I mean, I, gender question, I, I don't even know how to answer it. There's no verses I can tell. All I know is I believe that there will be archangels and angels in heaven, ruler angels and regular angels, and there will be ruler people and those under them. The only difference is there won't be any sin. Hmm. And so those in authority will not lord it over those under them, and those under will not resent those above them in authority. So fundamentally, uh, Paul is very zealous to make it clear he is not throwing off the office. Jesus himself in Matthew 23 said, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, Hmm. but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. So in that case, it's a matter of an order set up by God and we must submit to it. By the way, Paul, uh, Peter brings up this very issue in Second Peter where he talks about um, false teachers that boldly defy authority, uh, especially in the issue of Satan and demons. And it's like they take authority over demons and they don't understand that these are authoritative beings, rulers, authorities, and powers, and, and they despise authority. And uh, how Peter refutes it, saying even the archangel Michael dealt respectfully with Satan when he disputed over the body of Moses. Mm. And he didn't say anything. He just said, the Lord rebuke you and took care of the body. So that's a very interesting thing, respecting the authority even of fallen angels. So how much more should we respect the authority of human beings? And so I think that's why Paul reacts this way and says, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, what does he mean by I didn't realize he was high priest? Could either be that he's not a legitimate high priest. He was um, a puppet put there by by Rome, and Rome tried to control this. So I didn't really think he was a legitimate high priest. Or it could be that some some people think that he had a problem with his eyesight, and he didn't realize who he was dealing with. Hmm. And then it became clear when when he said, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? He's like, well, I didn't realize he was the high priest, hmm. etc. What did Paul do next, and what does this teach us about Paul's boldness, shrewdness, and political savvy? Okay, so what Paul does next is he kind of rolls a little hand grenade in the middle of the whole proceedings because he knows very well who they are. Uh, They know him, but he knows them. And he knows that they're divided into two basic parties. There were more parties than the two major parties, but you've got the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we have very uh, clearly described for us by the historian, Luke, who gives us some good background information in a very efficient way, um, saying, let's talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees, uh, he said, um, you know, believed in the resurrection and in angels and spirit beings. The the, uh, Sadducees didn't believe in any of them. So when you think about it, it's really, they were almost like the theological liberals, the Sadducees were. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. So that they really thought that this life is all there is. Um, 
it's really a hard way to live. Anyway, he knew that there was that basic power divide between the two. And so he calls out in the midst of this divided assembly saying, I'm a Pharisee and I'm a son of the Pharisees and I'm on trial right now for my belief in the resurrection from the dead. And he knew exactly what effect that was going to have. <laughs> and then he just stepped back and watched it go. And they start they start fighting, and they, it becomes a divided assembly that cannot render a verdict on him. Very clever, I think. Now, is that really why Paul was on trial, or is he simply recognizing the situation he's in and highlighting a particular aspect of the conflict here? It's hard to tell exactly what Paul was thinking, what his motives were. I know in general he would be delighted to preach the true gospel, the whole gospel, God, man, Christ response, the whole thing to all of them. But the fundamental issue of Christ's resurrection from the dead and how it validates everything he said, it's essential. If the Sadducees do not think there even can be a resurrection, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, then not even Christ has been raised from mm. the dead. So in the end, this is not some ancillary point. This is foundational to everything he's preaching. And mm. Christ's resurrection proves the validity of Christ's claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah and the Savior of the world. What does the violent uproar in the Sanhedrin teach us about the Jews of Paul's time? And did the Pharisees who stood up and supported Paul also thereby claim to believe in Christ? Uh, on the last question, I don't think so. I think it's a big leap to believe in the incarnation, you know, and I don't know necessarily that they even believed Jesus himself had been raised from the dead. They just believed in resurrection from the dead. Uh, but they knew who their enemies were. Whatever they do with this fellow Paul, they still have to fight these same people, the Sadducees, week after week. And so, you know, they are ready to go at each other. There's mm -hmm. no doubt. Paul, Paul just lit the match. So I, I don't know what Paul's motives were, but foundationally he would like everyone who hears him to find forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is by no means a full gospel presentation here. He doesn't even mention the name of Jesus uh, foundationally. He basically talks about resurrection in general, and the two parties are going at each other. And lest we think this is just some minor verbal spat, it apparently becomes so violent that the commander, the Roman commander, removes Paul from mm -hmm. their midst and takes him into the barracks, presumably for his own safety because of the way that this uproar is getting heated as they go at this debate. Yeah, they're re ready to kill him. And so again, if we look at, and we can start connecting the dots, if you look at the verse verses that led into this chapter, uh, it says the commander wanted to find out exactly why, why Paul was being accused by the Jews. Hmm. Okay, this is a regular theme by Luke. And then um, the Pharisees here say, we find nothing wrong with this man. Oh, that's interesting. And then, um, you know, rest of this chapter, Claudius Lysias is going to be uh, writing to uh, Governor Felix about, about this man, Paul. He was seized by the Jews, and they're about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him before the Sanhedrin. I found out that their accusation had to do with questions about their own law, mm. but there was no charge against him that deserved death, or imprisonment. Do you not see a purpose by Luke here saying this is an innocent man? The problem is the, the hatred within the Jewish nation unjustly leveled at this man. So I think that a case for Paul's innocence before the, the court of Rome is being laid here. 
Andy, in verse 11, we read that the Lord appears to Paul and stands by him. Uh, What's the significance of that statement, that the Lord stood by Paul? Oh, this is a very beautiful picture. And he's going to say the same thing at the very end of his writing career in 2 Timothy 4. He's going to say, at my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me, may it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Hmm. He's going to do it again during the the big shipwreck uh, where an angel of the Lord comes and strengthens him. Back in Acts 18, he said the Lord strengthened Paul. He was about to give up. He was getting discouraged. He said, keep on speaking. Do not be silent because I have many people in this city. Um, and no one's going to attack you and harm you. So here's the thing. The Lord gave Paul what he needed and strengthened him uh, in the inner man, the Lord Jesus being faithful to him. This reminds me of the Great Commission, and surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so in some mystical and powerful way, the Lord stands beside Paul here and um, takes a stand near him and tells him, take courage, you know. And then this prophecy, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Again, I feel like there's a testify about me in Rome aspect to the last third of the book of Acts. It's, It's Luke getting Paul ready to stand on trial before Caesar. So the Lord has told him he's going to testify about um, Jesus in Rome. And so this sets Paul up to do that. Andy, any final thoughts for us on this passage? No, it's an incredible um, passage. Uh, the idea of Paul, his his um, uh, mortality, I guess, his even perhaps um, his failings, um, his quick repentance from that, if indeed it was a failing, his shrewdness, cleverness, mm. But more than anything, his boldness, his willingness to die for Jesus, his courage to testify about Christ is all on display. And it's inspirational for all of us. We want to be witnesses like this as well. Well, this has been episode 43 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 44, entitled A Plot Thwarted by God's Providence, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.